Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Have you ever wondered whether having a robot in your shop makes sense? Then wondered, how can I afford the risk of buying one, getting it up and running? Who's going to be accountable for it? And then making sure it's profitable. Today's guest, Salman Fareed, the CEO and founder of Formic saw the hesitation of manufacturers in installing robots for exactly these reasons and started a company to make it much easier. Formic owns, installs, and then leases robots to manufacturers by the hour, typically at an hourly rate much less than a human team member. I wanted to bring Salman on the Job Shop Show because I think robots are probably a worthwhile investment in almost every shop. And as such, how can a shop make it easy to bring them in? In this conversation, Salman is going to talk about some of the ways he sees shops using robots, even small shops, and how you can bring a robot in-house without any risk. You might be surprised with his answer when I ask him, after the first robot, what percent of companies bring on board a second robot? Let's get going. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Salman. Thanks so much for having me on, Jay. I'm excited to be here. I first read about Formic in Wired Magazine. There was an online piece about robotics as a service and the ability not to purchase a robot but to lease a robot by the hour and at a rate that would be potentially less than paying a person so that solves a a few different problems and i thought that man this would resonate with the listeners of the job shop show so maybe you can tell us who Formic Technologies is and why you get going, what you saw as a need and where you are today. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited to tell you about it. Maybe I'll start with a little bit of context on my own background. You know, I was an engineer and a roboticist and I lived in Silicon Valley for about 10 years where I got to see a lot of really interesting cutting edge technologies when it comes to robotics and people are building, you know, new computer vision and new sensors and new systems to make robots smarter and smarter and smarter. But what I realized was that despite all of this new technology, adoption is really low. Uh, most factories and most manufacturers have very few robots actually on their floor, except for maybe Procter & Gamble or GM and some of the really big guys. And I kept scratching my head about you know why that is. And ultimately what I realized is that it comes down to the fact that most manufacturers are really focused on running their facilities. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to new technologies like automation, there's this kind of gargantuan demand on them to make a bunch of decisions and to put up a lot of capital and to take a lot of risk just to get a robot working on their floor. So we set out to solve that problem. Essentially, you know, what, what we do as Formic is we take on all of the complexity of automating. The way that we tell our customers to work is literally just point at what you want, automate it, and we'll figure out everything else. So that means we do all of the upfront engineering and design work. We do all of the customization as necessary. We purchase anything that's needed to make that cell work. So whether that's the robot itself, or whether that's fixtures or conveyors or sensors, we buy all of it and pay for it ourselves up front. And then we deploy the system. And only once it's running, our customers then pay us an hourly rate to use it, which is cheaper than labor. And then on top of that, we also take over all of the ongoing maintenance of that system. So if it goes down for some reason, or if it needs lubrication in the joints, or it needs some kind of update or software update or, or hardware update, that's all on us. And we own that robot indefinitely. And, and uh, so, you know, the goal for us is really we're, we're trying to turn into a, a robot staffing agency, if you will. You know, we own the robots. We'll deploy them at, at your plant or you're on your job, shop floor for a month or six months or a year or three years. And then when your needs change, you know, we will take that robot back, no questions asked, and we'll put it somewhere else and keep it in service. And because we're able to have these robots working across lots of facilities and we're able to manage and maintain robots across all these different facilities at the same time, it ends up being a lot cheaper for us. Because on the one side, when we buy the robots, we get a much better deal because we go to the big robot companies like Fanuc and Universal Robots and, and other ones. And we say, hey, you know, we're buying hundreds of robots. So you better get us a good deal. We have our own technicians that service all the robots, and then we can redeploy them. So we actually can deploy robots for significantly cheaper than it costs for a factory owner to do it on their own. So we take away the complexity, we take away the risk, we take away the CapEx, and all that you're left with is just pay for the outcome. And so uh, it's something that we've seen people flock to, to this model now that it's, it's out there and now that it's possible. And, you know, for us, really what, what makes it meaningful is we see a lot of factories and job shops struggle with access to, you know, they have open heads, but we were at a, we were at a CNC shop recently and we sat down with the owners and did a real analysis of the, the spindle time on their CNC machines. You know, how many hours per year are you actually running uh, that machine? And if you do the analysis, most of the factories that we've talked to, it's probably only about 1,000 to 2,000 hours a year out of 8,600 possible production hours. So if you do the math on that, you're only using your machines for maybe 15% of its possible production. And I think once people see those numbers laid out, automation becomes such an obvious choice because you've already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on your CNC mm -hmm. machines or your shop floor or your presses. 
you spent money on your facilities, you spent money on marketing, you spent money on distribution, you spent money on all this stuff. And then to only operate it 15% of the time, you know, it, the math is just not going to work. And so when we put robots into the facilities, what we see is people then slowly start to increase utilization. They go from one shift a day to two shifts a day to three shifts a day. The robots just kind of churn out parts day in, day out. And it, it really makes a difference for these facilities. There are so many things I want to get into that <laughs> with what you just said. And let me start with first, can you share with the listener the mission statement for Formic? Because I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah, our goal ultimately is to increase the collective output of humanity while reducing the the drudgery, dull and drudgerous work. So, you know, we think people are creative, intelligent beings, and we believe that they'll, you know, for them to spend their time doing a repetitive task on repeat is not the best use of their energy. And our goal is to create opportunities for people to apply their creativity, apply their knowledge, apply their skill and their dexterity in meaningful ways. And we think that robots doing the drudgery will enable all of humanity to kind of produce more and create more. Maybe if I'll give a little bit of, you know, anecdote about this, you know, one thing that, that we, you know, this is a book I read a few years ago, but there was a period of of time in human history where everybody was focused on subsistence farming. You know, basically people would plant just enough food that they could survive. And that was pretty much it. So 99% of humans spent all of their time just feeding themselves and trying to find ways to stay alive. And it wasn't until the agricultural revolution came that some small number of people were able to create enough food for everybody else. And when that happened, you know, society really developed, right? We were able to advance in science and art and knowledge, but people were developing systems of governance to organize people better. People were able to build defenses, all these things. And that really pushed humanity forward. And I think we've reached a, a stage in civilization again, where uh, again, like the majority of people are, are spending their time building goods and services just to survive. And I think uh, robots can really help with just drastically increasing the output of every facility in the world, creating so much abundance that people can really then go and, and advance civilization again, even further. So that's what gets me up in the morning and gets me excited. That's awesome. I think it's so powerful and it relates to an example that I'll share. If listeners have gone through some of the podcasts, there was an episode where we talked about a shop that implemented a robot and how they got the team members on board in the shop in and it was true that once the robot got up and running, they were not able to hire as many people as they would like to. So the folks that now had the drudgery removed out of their lives were positioned in the company to do more value-added tasks and to allow them to be more creative. So that was a really cool story to hear. Could you give us a example, like, or, or maybe you could jump right in and share what happened at Polar Manufacturing, which is the company that's highlighted in the Wired Magazine story. Can you tell us how Polar is using robots, how you got involved with them, how that whole story works? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Polar is a, a really great case study. They are a metal fabrication shop that is more than a hundred years old. They used to make parts actually for the Ford Model T back in the day. So there's an incredible history there. They also make a lot of hinges and latches and things like that. So in all their history had never implemented automation. You know, they had thought about it. They had tried to do it many times, but it just never, never came to fruition. Either it cost too much or it was too risky or their needs kept changing. And so they ended up not ever having any robots. So when we got uh, introduced to them, we told them a little bit about what Formic does and how it works. And they said instantly, you know, I want, I want robots, you know, everywhere. I'm so short staffed. I think they have 20 or so open heads today that they're looking to hire and just haven't been able to find reliable machine operators to come in and, and run their systems. So the first robot that we put in for them was a, um, was a press tending robot. So we were unloading and unloading metal bars into a press. There was about 10, I think, different part variations that we, we programmed into that, that robot. And it's been running uninterrupted now for, for almost six months. And they, Do they run that three shifts. They went, so when we started, they were running at one shift and they recently increased that to two shifts now. So it's 20 hours a day, two 10 hour shifts. And they're looking to increase that even further. And they came back to us, you know, two weeks after that robot was installed. I actually, I remember the first day that the robot was installed, you know, the owner came in and just stared at that robot, you know, for, for a few hours <laughs> and he was just watching it in shock. He's like, something's going to go wrong. You know, like, well, how is this robot, you know, working so reliably? And, and, you know, when you first see this robot, it's, it's actually pretty stark because, you know, this facility is filled with presses and CNC machines and lathes that are, you know, 50 years or hundred years old even. And then kind of in the middle of that sea of old machinery, there's this one kind of shiny new <laughs> robot that's loading and unloading. So it's kind of, uh, you know, a stark, a stark situation to see, but the owner really, you know, was blown away by the amount of throughput he was getting. He was, I think three or four months behind schedule on a lot of his production targets. And basically with our robot, he started catching up really quickly. So he came back and said, now I want my second robot cell, which is it's a spot welding uh, robot. So again, just loads and unloads a part into a spot welder. And that robot is now up and running and he's really excited about it and really happy about the performance there. And so now we're putting in a third one soon. And, you know, there's probably opportunity to put in 10 to 20 robots in that guy's facility. And just to give a comparison, you know, their fully loaded labor rates in that facility were probably around 20 to 25 bucks an hour. And our robot cost them about $10 an hour. So it was just immediate OPEX savings on, on, there was no other cost on day one. The robot gets installed and they start saving money and they start getting higher production. And their staff is really happy because now people are able to go and do some of these more dexterous, more complex tasks and the more dangerous, you know, kind of what we think of as the perfect opportunities for robots is we call it dull, dull dirty and dangerous. So the robots that we put in for, for Polar are, are exactly that. Well, to me, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is that it is so hard to find operators today. It's, it's hard to find the skilled folks as well. But as you said, they have 20 openings still. They can be filled with robots, or at least some of them probably can be filled. You had the opportunity to go and prove it out by, as you said, putting it in in a low-cost, low-risk situation. And I think that, that that's really powerful. I'm going to read some questions that are on your website and a blog article in regards to manufacturing CFOs, but in many cases, a shop owner is the CFO at the company. And specifically, I'm going to 
read right from the article here. It says, as a manufacturing CFO, if you answer yes to the following questions, you may want to consider Formic. Does your business have trouble hiring operators for manufacturing positions? When you are able to hire, does high turnover result in increased costs and reduced productivity? Is your business under cost pressures, potentially losing key current business or in winning new business? Do you see the potential value of automation and robotics, but wonder whether that is the highest return on investment for your valuable capital? Are you worried that automation will come with hidden and or unforeseen costs, which will further stress your budget and potentially turn an automation solution into an automation problem? Are you concerned that you may not have the right expertise to successfully spec, install, and manage automation without hiring expensive engineers? And I love these questions, Salman, because I think that this drives a lot of the hesitation for a shop owner. All those questions combined, it is not easy to bring that first robot into a shop. There mm -hmm. is a lot of risk. Yeah. And I really like the way you phrased it, the robotic staffing agency. There are temp staffing agencies out there and you need probably more unskilled than skilled labor, but you can go out and hire them as needed. And a great way to think about it or change your mindset is let's think of robots as that temp labor and maybe not so temp labor. What, what would be the path if a shop owner is listened this far and says, I think there might be an opportunity for a robot in my shop? What do they have to think about and, and what should they think about before giving you a call or getting in touch with you? Yeah. So our mission really is to make it as simple as possible. So what that means literally is if a shop owner is thinking about automating, all they need to do is send us an email. You can send it to hi at formic.co mm -hmm. and you can just describe it you say hey you know i have a lathe that i need loaded and unloaded you know my part sizes are roughly this size the weights are roughly this weight and that's really all we need you send us that we'll get in touch and what we might ask for is for you to take a quick you know cell phone video or a couple of images of your site of or of the cell that you want automated and we'll come back to you within a couple of days with a quote uh, of, you know, this will cost 10 bucks an hour or 12 bucks an hour, or 15 bucks an hour, depending on the complexity there. And if it makes sense for you, then all you have to do is say yes, and we'll handle everything else. You know, we'll handle all the install, we'll handle all the engineering, all the vendor management, all the maintenance, all the service. So again, you know, our mission is to make it just ridiculously easy. And one, one example that I think might resonate with people is email. So I'm sure everybody on here on your podcast has email, but I'm sure people also remember, you know, 15 years ago, if you wanted to have an email address, you had to go through a really complex process, right? You would have to right. buy a bunch of servers and put them somewhere, right? Buy a reliable internet connection, pay probably 20 to $50,000 for somebody to configure that email server for you. And then, you know, probably you would have to hire an IT person to come and manage that because it would go down every few months and just an incredible painstaking thing to do. And so as a result, you know, most people just didn't get email and it wasn't until some companies like, you know, Hotmail and Gmail and these guys came along and said, actually, it's way more efficient. If we manage all the servers for you, let us take all the servers. We'll put them in one facility. We'll manage them. We'll maintain them. And you just use email and just pay to use it. Or actually in those cases, it's free. But, you know, that really led to mass adoption. 
And I think it's it's the same thing with with robotics. You know, I don't think we can expect for every shop owner and every plant manager to become expert at robotics. You know, they're an expert in their own facility. They're an expert at running that facility. They're an expert at their industry. But to also, on top of all that, become an expert in robotics is just, I think it's a big ask. And that's kind of where we come in. We say, you know what, like we know robotics really well. We know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And so we just take off the, the complexity off of your plate and just handle it for you. Well, that jives with what I've been trained is that when you have a problem or opportunity, instead of asking, how am I going to do this? You say, who is going to do it for me? And Formic could be the who for a shop for robotic implementation. You mentioned the loading, unloading, and tending of machines. So a lathe, a press break, machining center. What other applications are there for the robots? Or what have you put in or seen at shops? Yeah, we've done uh, a pretty big variety. We've done some welding robots. So that might be of interest mm-hmm. to some of your uh, your listeners. We've also done a lot, if you think about the kind of beginning and end of a manufacturing line, mm-hmm. there's usually some kind of packaging involved. So we do a lot of palletizing, loading boxes onto pallets. We do some depalletizing, which is kind of taking raw bar stock or, or sheet metal stock and, and taking it out of pallets. We've done some mobile robots as well, which is moving things around the facility. So, you know, a lot of factories might have a few people that are dedicated forklift operators or hand truck operators, you know, some of that can, can be automated if there's enough volume, there's some inspection. So that's a really good opportunity for automation sometimes because, Mm -hmm. you know, we have a customer that makes parts for the aerospace industry and they used to have every single part manually inspected. And it took about two hours or so to do the full, you know, full complete inspection. And we put in a robot cell that does the same thing in 15 minutes. Let's dive into that a little more because I I see inspection as a big win. When you say that the robot is doing the inspection, what type of part is it? And how is it being inspected? Is it a touch probe, optical? Let's get into some nitty gritty if you For this specific customer, it's an aluminum part Mm -hmm. and it's an optical inspection. So it does dimensional checks and it also checks the surface for irregularities. So that's also another optical check. So the robot looks at it from a few different angles. This specific one doesn't have a touch probe, but you know, if it's needed that we can also have that included as part of the automation cell as well. How does the part get into the robot's? Arm. It just comes straight off of the conveyor. So the robot picks it off the conveyor, does the inspection, and then once it's completed, it puts it back on the conveyor. Are there multiple robots then? Because if it's taking 15 minutes, it seems like... Yeah, yeah. So this cell in particular, I think we ended up with three robots to get the throughput that we needed. And I think that reduced their need for headcount about, I think, 12 people. Wow. And how would they do it manually? Would the part come down the conveyor? Someone would pick it up and then does the part have to be repositioned for the robot or is it is it holding on in one trying to get the comparison of how a person would do it as opposed to the robot 
what what the robot does is basically yeah it it, it takes it into a few different orientations mm-hmm. so um, there's a separate kind of sensor array and then the robot picks up the part puts it under the the sensor array and moves it around in, in a couple of different directions and then at one point, I think it puts it down and then grabs it in a different orientation and then does another series of movements. And then once it's done with all of those, it puts it on the conveyor. So I don't know if that answers your question. That does. And, and this is a great example because this seems like it's a not the first project you would pick for a robot. Was this the first robot project you did for this company or were there other ones implemented first? Yeah, so for this specific customer, this was the first robot project. We basically did a quick analysis with them of a few different work cells. And this is the one that actually turned out to have the highest immediate, you know, OPEX savings for them. So we don't talk about ROI because we don't ask for any, there's no investment necessary, right? So there's not really a ROI (laughs) for the customer, but basically, yeah, immediate OPEX savings. So this to me is powerful because if I am a owner, I am not going to pick this project for the first one because there are so many variables and I don't even understand robots. I don't have one in house yet, but this was the one that had the most value to the company. And they were able to say, let's do it first because you were able to take the risk away from that. So what what a big win there. That's a quite common situation we found is like, when customers contact us, they might have a particular application in mind mm-hmm. because maybe that guy, you know, quit this morning or or, <laughs> or didn't show up for work or whatever. So there's some urgent, immediate need. So usually, you know, of course, we'll evaluate that and see if it's a good fit. But what we found is a lot of time, if we spend uh, the time, we just do a walkthrough uh, of the facility with the customer. We may find, you know, usually we find at least five to 10 different opportunities for automation. And then we'll do the analysis and come back and say, look, you know, these are the three that we think are the best immediate fits. And again, we'll pay for all the equipment and you'll only pay for usage once you see it up and running. So it makes it really risk-free for the customer. Because if, you know, if we're wrong, we're the one who's footing the bill, right? We're we're putting skin in the game. Yeah. So that makes it a pretty easy decision. The question that I think is probably definitely in my mind, but probably in the listener's mind is volume. What sort of volume do I have to have for a robot to make sense? In the long runs, it's sort of obvious, but when I start to get down to medium run parts or short run parts, how do you integrate robots into a mold there? Yeah, I'm going to give you an an answer you're going to hate, which is it depends. I'll give some, I'll give some extreme examples. One example is we have a customer that they have a lot of part variation for their CNC machine, but all the parts are relatively similar. Like they're the same size, similar weight, similar shape. So we know we can use the same robot for all of those parts. And that means that, you know, because we don't have to swap out the hardware, we just update the software to to add more parts. That robot is running probably, you know, two full shifts a day. And even though I think there's like a hundred different part variations, but those hundred parts are all similar enough that it works. On the other hand, we do have customers where, you know, first they have to handle a really small piece and then they have to handle a really big piece and the weights are different and the materials are different and the way that you grip them is different. Sometimes you have to take it out of a box. Sometimes you have to take it off the conveyor. Sometimes you have to put it into, you know, some other machine. So depending on, you know, if each part has a very different process, Honestly, automation may not be the best fit there with today's technology. So 
the kind of rule of thumb that we, we tell our customers is if you can give me a list of parts that we can handle with the same robot that you can do, you can run them about at least one full shift per day, then okay. it makes sense to automate. If you can't do that, like, you know, at most you're doing, just doing two hours a day of this part and then two hours a day of that part, it's going to be hard to make the automation make sense. Have you done any automation with a screw machine shop? We've been looking at some, but we have not yet done any. Seems like they would have the types of runs that would be particularly appealing to robotic integration. Mm, yeah. The typical way that I have seen companies start to get started with robots is through a integrator. And would you say you're an integrator or how do you play in that world? We're a little bit like a partner for the integrators. So we work with a lot of different integrators as well, but we are, I'd say like a meta integrator, <laughs> if you want to think about it that way. So I'll give an example. We have a customer that has five or six different robots in their facility. And each of them is different. One of them is working near a forge. One of them is working at a press. One of them is working in the cold part of the facility. One of them is doing packaging. Mm -hmm. So most integrators specialize in one or two of these areas. Nobody does all four of them, or at least nobody does all four of them really well. And so what we did for that project is we, you know, became, you can think of us a little bit like a general contractor for, for a construction project, but we came in and we chose and designed all four of those different cells. And then we brought on different integrators to build each of those cells according to our specs and the integrator basically worked on the project that they were the most specialized in but you know the customer our customer didn't have to then spend a bunch of time trying to vet out different integrators and choose one that they liked and choose the technology because at the end of the day they're not the ones footing the bill you know i'm the one footing the bill formic pays for all the equipment pays for all the engineering pays for everything so if i choose again if i choose the wrong integrator that's on me and I, i'm putting my money where my mouth is so integrators are partners, and I would think as robots, if you help robots become more prevalent, then it works for all parties. The shops win, the integrators win, and you win. Absolutely, yeah. Our hope is to you know, build this large network of really great integrators and bring them lots and lots of projects. And it makes it easier for them because you know integrators also have a challenge, which is they quote tons and tons of projects. I think we talked to an integrator recently that quotes about 150 projects per year mm -hmm. and only wins like three of them or four wow. of them. And, and it's a lot of work to quote these projects. And the main reason that they don't win these projects at the end of the day is because of capital. You know, like their end customer says, okay, yeah, I really want this, but I don't have CapEx available. Let's wait till next year or it's too risky or I don't know if the ROI is going to make sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we come in and we help out the integrators and we say, look, no problem we'll pay for it. Let's get it installed in the customer's facility and they can just use it and look at the benefits from using it. We'll foot the bill. What makes me think that it's probably easy to buy another machining center if you're machining, if your spindle's running a thousand, two thousand hours uh, a year and you sort of, all, all this is known. So your, your CapEx for adding a machine. Okay. But even though the numbers show they'll work for a robot, all those risks and bringing it in, it, it's more of a sure thing to buy the machine and find an operator somehow. So again, success breeds success. Once you get that robot in, actually that's a, 
how many of your customers after they bring in the first robot bring in a second or or more than another one it's basically a hundred percent almost every customer that we put one robot in has come back and asked for more the only exceptions to that are the ones that you know maybe we installed it last week and they yeah. haven't yet right, had right. time to appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. can you tell us some of the brand names of the robots you've installed and i'm sure you're agnostic on purpose because you want to have a good relationship with all the manufacturers, but maybe tell us some of those names and what the specialties, where, where, where you might want to use different types of robots. Yeah. So right now we do a lot of robot projects with FANUC and Universal Robots. We also have some robots from Yaskawa and are looking at projects with other vendors as well. So the the three names I I mentioned, those are the kind of most common ones right now that we're using. It's hard to say which one is best for which thing, each of them. So there's collaborative robots that are good for environments where the people need to work in really close proximity with the robots. When you hear the term a cobot, it would be collaborative. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. A cobot is a collaborative robot and those, they have what's called force feedback. So like if you accidentally bump into the robot, basically it'll stop. Like it won't plow through, you know, I'll, I'll kill you. yeah, exactly. Whereas the kind of traditional industrial robots, they don't have that feature, but there's a trade-off, which is the cobots generally work a lot more slowly. Mm-hmm. They can't go at the same speeds and they can't have the same precision as traditional industrial robots. So if you have really high part precision that's necessary and high repeatability, industrial robots usually are a better bet. So, you know, we work with the different vendors and we have a good idea of the specs for each of them. And depending on the use case, we'll pick the the right robot cell. The thing about industrial robots is, you know, generally they need more space because then you have to build cages around it (laughs) to, to, uh, and, and usually some safety scanning and things like that to prevent people from getting injured. Whereas for Cobots, you may not need as much in the way of safety, you know, and insulation because people just like the, the robot can deal if, if somebody comes in its way. Are there any things on the near horizon with robots that are particularly exciting to you and you think are going to be home runs? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of companies right now working on with, you know, what they call robot intelligence, but essentially it's basically just making robots a little smarter and a little more flexible. So traditional rule-based robots um, are, uh, when you program them, you have to give them very specific instructions. You got to say, you know, move this joint 30 degrees, move that joint five degrees, you know, close the gripper and pick it up and put it back down. So you have to give it really specific detailed instructions. And if something changes in the environment, you know, like the robot gets bumped a little bit and it's just like slightly off, or if the parts are slightly different shape or different sizes, you got to change your program. Otherwise the robot's not going to work. But there are people now working on robot intelligence, which allows the robot to be a lot more responsive to its environment. So basically it's got a bunch of cameras and, and sensors on it. And when you program the robot, you basically just say, you know, pick up the water bottle and put it, you know, over here and orient it in this way. And the robot then becomes smart enough to understand what's a water bottle, where's the water bottle, do I see one in, in front of me, should I pick it up, you know, how should I pick it up, it figures out the right way to grab it and then it puts it away. So there are companies that are working on that. I would say it's not quite at the level of intelligence yet where 
it's useful for factories. It probably only works 70% of the time. <laughs> so that's just not going to work for a factory environment. But that number is creeping up quickly. And I think when we get to 95, you know, 99%, then we'll start implementing those kinds of robots into our, into our customers' sites as well. One of the things that I like about what your company is doing because of the number of installations and the threat is you have developed your own proprietary technology to make yourself more efficient and be better for the customers. So can you get into some of those? I, I've got a list here, but we'll, we'll let you take first stab. Yeah, for sure. There's a, a lot of different pieces of the technology stack that we've solved. So maybe starting from the beginning, when we do an evaluation of a customer's site, you know, the traditional model would be to send a bunch of engineers on site and they would come back and forth a few times and measure things with a tape measure and then mm-hmm. figure out roughly what the space constraints are and the ceiling. And, you know, it's just a very complicated and time-consuming process. So we've built tools that allow our engineers or our technicians or our salespeople to basically use a LiDAR scanner and just quickly create a full 3D model of the customer's work cell. And that allows us to then really quickly be able to design the perfect setup for that environment. Then the next step is, you know, traditional, there's a lot of manual labor involved in designing the robot work cell. So they say, okay, we're going to have a, a, you know, this type of robot there, and it's going to, you know, this is the right shape and this is the right orientation, et cetera, et cetera. We've developed a software that automatically uh, generates the right uh, robot cell design and mm-hmm. simulates that robot cell design. So actually in, before we build a single thing, we fully simulated that robot work cell in the customer's environment. So, so you can get on a Zoom call with the customer and say, here's what we're proposing. Exactly. They can see a video of the robot operating in their actual facility. So it's in a real 3D environment of their their own facility. And then we go through the process of installing and deploying the robot. Obviously, we, we have a bunch of technology that makes that easier. But then once the robot's installed, we also have our own proprietary hardware and software that we put on the robot that collects data from that robot. Again, you know, as a reminder, because we own the robot and we're responsible for the performance of that robot, we have to do whatever it takes to keep that system up and running. So we collect data from that robot. And then if there's ever any issues, you know, we send our technicians on site and there's proactive and preventative maintenance. So on the reactive side, you know, obviously if there's an issue, we'll send somebody in, but most of the time what happens is what we, we start to get some anomalies in the sensor readings. And we say, oh, it looks like this joint temperature is getting higher than we expected, or it looks like there's some vibration and maybe there's some wear and tear on one of the, one of the joints or, you know, whatever it might be. And Once we start to notice those anomalies, we'll immediately dispatch somebody to go and find out what the situation is. And it may just be lubricating the joint. It may require a replacement part, but we do that before the system goes down and that keeps the machine running as much as possible. And that's good for us because we get paid by the hour and it's good for our customers because they want, you know, their line up and running. Well, I guess you could call that predictive maintenance. Are you constrained geographically or where do you operate? So right now we're primarily focused on the Midwest uh, and the Southeast. So we have a big team in Chicago and Milwaukee and Ohio and in Michigan. And we uh, also have a team in South Carolina that covers South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, and, and some of those surrounding Tennessee. 
But we're now also building up a team in the Southwest. So a team in Texas that's going to cover that region. And soon we hope to build a team in Mid-Atlantic and in California as well. So that should cover most of the manufacturing bases. That being said, if a customer is outside of that region, we still may be able to work with them. We just have to put in place, you know, a couple of integrator partners and things like that locally. So we should be able to serve almost anybody in the U.S. And I noticed your headquarters is in Chicago. Why did you pick Chicago as the launching point? Well, a lot of our initial engineers live in Chicago. And also it's the place that has great access to nearby manufacturing hubs. But I would say, I don't think, you know, Chicago is necessarily our headquarters per se. It's our first kind of local hub, but we're building hubs in many other locations as well. and, And each of them will have a team of maintenance techs, engineers, salespeople, and then our more central functions like uh, finance and marketing and things like that are spread throughout. One of the things that a shop owner wants to make sure is that the supplier is going to be around. And I saw that you raised money, it looks like last month, and you have access to a lot of debt. So you, when you talk about building out your team, it seems like you're well positioned to move forward. Can you comment on that? Yeah, that's right. We recently raised a new funding round of about $30 million of of equity capital. In addition to that, we have about $150 million of debt capital that is available for purchasing equipment. So, you know, we're going to be around for a long time. We're going to be serving these customers for a long time. One of the applications I was thinking as we were talking is the Amada has really impressive press break technology now with their automatic tool changer, very similar to the machining centers. Have you looked at or implemented any robots with the Amada press breaks that are, are doing the tool changers? I know they have their own, but you might be able to put your own spin on it. Yeah, we have, I think two of our customers are using those Almada press brakes and we we interface with those brakes and we know when to basically what the right timing is for the, for the robot to load or unload a part. Any other specific shop stories you can share with the listener that might be relevant to them? We have, so I, I I don't know if I can kind of disclose their names because We've signed NDAs with most of our customers and we don't really talk about their names unless they give us explicit permission, but we have a customer that does sheet metal fabrication. So they make things like gutters or downsprouts or or metal roofing uh, materials. So that, that customer, we've put in a robot for them. And again, we're we're putting in a second and third robot quite soon. And I think it's, it's another example where they're, I think they were 20, 30% understaffed. They were you know, behind their production targets. They supply a couple of these big box stores that were giving them lots of pressure for meeting these you know, production timing. And you know, we were able to put in some robots there and, and really help them ease that pressure. Part of your background looks like is you have a lot of experience with machine intelligence and artificial intelligence. And maybe looking beyond even the robots on the floor, Where do you think that will be going in the future? Where can that potentially have the biggest impact for a job shop manufacturer and how will it be applied? I think machine intelligence and artificial intelligence 
is really starting to come to manufacturing in a big way. I think we're probably about five to seven years away from seeing it really hit scale, but there's a lot of different places where it might have an impact. I think one area that AI is going to start helping a lot is in material resource planning. So, you know, there's a lot of traditional MRP software out there that helps job shops and manufacturing facilities manage their inventory, manage their procurement, manage their, you know, kind of production timelines. And what we're starting to see is robots that, I'm sorry, not robots, but just AI that automates a lot of the complexity there and makes decisions in a way that's much more efficient ultimately for the user. So, you know, most manufacturers, for example, you know, they might make decisions about their procurement process, or they might make decisions about their vendors, maybe once a month, maybe once a quarter, maybe even longer than that. But what the AI can do is basically, you know, second by second, it can update based on what the best kind of sourcing is for each piece of material. So that's on the MRP side, you know, on the production process itself, we're seeing a lot of interesting machine intelligence coming into play in the fabrication process itself. So I'll give an example. I'm on the board of a company called Machina Labs that they actually make parts for the aerospace industry and some other industries as well. And they've made this really cool system that basically they have a couple of robot arms that can deform sheet metal in whatever way that you want to to shape it. So it basically presses it in an iterative process and it removes the need for a traditional stamping process and allows you to do really small volume, high precision sheet metal stamping. And so you can do whether you're doing one part or 10 parts or 50 parts, it's about the same cost as a press, but you don't have to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on a die. You don't have to spend all this effort on machinery. So with that in place, you know, what they're going to start seeing is I think fab shops are going to also start working with more creative design processes. Customer demands are becoming more complicated. They want a lot more customization. And so machine intelligence is driving production lines that are also a lot more flexible. So you might create one part with one configuration and the second part can be a totally different configuration, but it doesn't slow you down at all. There's no retooling. There's no complex processes. And then I think robotics is the other big area. Robotics, like what we're doing, loading and unloading, palletizing and depalletizing, moving things around, I think also make it a lot easier for factories to scale up their production capacity. Inspection is another area where computer vision is getting a lot smarter and a lot better at understanding the environment. Computer vision is also making a lot of impact on the safety in manufacturing facilities. So it enables all the machines and and systems to know where all the people are and what they're doing at any given moment so that you don't end up with any issues. So I think there's a lot of areas where AI is really going to have a big impact in the manufacturing world. Well, Simon, this has been fascinating talking to you. It, it seems like we are getting at that tipping point where it's not a question of if you're going to have a robot in your shop, but rather when. And I really appreciate the time you spent with us, helping us understand how a shop can take the risk and the cost out of bringing a robot in-house. Any last words? A huge thank you for inviting me. I I think what you're doing is so meaningful. Really a big admirer of what you're able to do to kind of share knowledge with these listeners and, and, and the fabrication industry in general. I think there's a huge opportunity today to kind of revitalize American manufacturing and bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And I'm excited that we're both a part of that.
I think this really plays into a theme that I talk about a lot that innovate, automate, or evaporate. And as you, the listener, think about how you can apply a robot in your own workflow, perhaps you would want to reach out to Formic and explore those opportunities. So that's my ask today is figure out not if a robot works within your facility, but how it could work within your facility. Until next time, let's keep those robots loading and unloading, those lasers cutting, and those spindles turning. Have a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show. Thank you.